what would it mean to sort of use a periodization scheme that is aligned with musical uh, media or technology? We can talk about the 78 RPM era as the first half of the 20th century, but it extends uh, into the 1960s as well, the period of independence for Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria. I think there can be a tendency to sort of um, talk about an independent music industry only at that moment of, of independence. Um, but, you know, if we're talking about independent record labels in the 20s and 30s, we can already point to homegrown independent uh, record labels in North Africa, um, recording artists locally. They're not just sort of creating an independent uh, musical infrastructure, but they're also, in some cases, recording material that is nationalist, anti-colonialist, subversive in any number of ways. So I think we need to, to shine a light on, on certainly those, uh, those, those labels uh, across North Africa of the 1960s and 1970s, and then eventually when we get into the cassette era. But I think it's also important to remember their, uh, their forerunners of, of the 20s and, and 30s, um, who were doing some really daring, uh, daring things at, at, at great potential cost to, uh, to their lives, their livelihoods. My name's uh Christopher Silver, I'm the Siegel Family uh, Assistant Professor of Jewish History and Culture at McGill University. I have been collecting records since 2009. <laughs> This is the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Creighton. In this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast, I'll be talking to Chris Silver about his research on the rise of the recording industry in North Africa and the pivotal role of Jewish artists in developing the music of modern Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. Join us.
I want to start by talking a little bit about the broad strokes of the recording industry that produced this music that you're interested in. We can talk about an industry now that's at least 120 years old. By 1880s, across uh, the region, not just in North Africa, um, but in across the Middle East as well, there, there are references to the phonograph uh, uh, in the press, as well as the phonograph itself is is uh, is across uh, the region. So, um, you know, the Shah of Iran uh, in the 1880s already is in possession of of, uh, of a phonograph. So, you know, the the spread of of the technology very much is is in parallel to its spread um, elsewhere. Uh, around around the world, by the 1890s in in North Africa, there there aren't just phonographs there, but individuals are making uh, recordings of North African artists in Arabic on cylinder. Um, so sort of the, the the predecessor to the to the flat disc or the the shellac disc. Among those in uh, in Algeria, who's really a pioneer of this new technological form is a Algerian Jew by the name of uh, Edmond Nathan Yafil, who uh, is, is born and raised in the Casbah of Algiers, born, raised, bred in the musical milieu that is the Casbah. So uh, his father owns a sort of greasy spoon restaurant serving uh, alubia. He's really in the mix there, uh, situated between any number of cafes where sort of the preeminent uh, Jewish and Muslim artists uh, of the time gather, uh, make music, uh, and, and delight uh, these, these multi-confessional uh, uh, audiences. He, again, Yafil begins uh, recording some of the most iconic Algerian musicians of the 20th century already in, in the first years of, of the 20th century. So using that cylinder technology. And then a few years later, what we might call the majors or the, the international uh, labels based in, in Europe, but who expand around the globe to record. So uh, the gramophone label, uh, Pate, Odeon, uh, etc., um, uh, descend on North Africa, much as they do uh, the Middle East as well. And uh, when they get to Algiers, one of their representatives shows up in Algiers in, in 1908, and they find this figure of Edmond Nathan Yafil already there, already recording, already with a, a sort of an industry, a recording industry of his own. And so they tap him to represent them and their interests uh, in uh, in across Algeria. Uh, so what this means is that he um, he, he serves in any number of, uh, of functions, but perhaps most importantly for our conversation, he serves as artistic director for the major recording companies at the time, uh, which means that sort of all those individual musicians that he was in uh, close contact with in, in the Casbah of, uh, of Algiers uh, are suddenly ushered into these makeshift uh, recording studios. And it's thanks to him 
that uh, their voices are, are captured and uh, sort of become uh, become the gold standard for uh, whether it's Andalusian music or popular music as uh, as the 20th century wears on. So you know already in in the in the in the aughts, the 19 aughts, we can talk about the formation of an industry, uh, record labels moving in, uh, recording artists emerging as uh, as artists, records being sold from from any number of uh, stores. And then uh, the teens and the 20s, especially the 20s, uh, records just exploding across uh, North Africa. Additional labels move in. Electrical uh, recording technology emerges uh, in 1925. So in other words, uh, musicians no longer have to sing into a, a horn. Uh, a phonograph horn, but they can um, uh, they can record with a microphone. You know, the the advent of uh, electrical recording means that um, the range of music that can be uh, captured on uh, uh, these uh, discs of of three minutes uh, or so per side expands dramatically. So bigger orchestras, uh, uh, different pitches, uh, different sounds, and and you you get a sense of that change when you look at the music of uh, already the mid-1920s and certainly the 19. 30s as well. So, you know, all of that to say that by the time we get radio, we already have a well-established uh, recording industry. We have at least three decades of, uh, of uh, records in circulation in, in North Africa by the time we get things like uh, Radio Algeria and uh, Radio Maroc and Radio Tunis. And so, um, you know, this is, uh, it's an industry, there's a musical infrastructure. And, you know, uh, as, uh, as we move to uh, the mid-20th century, um, thousands of titles have been recorded, um, hundreds of thousands of discs uh, have been circulating, um, not just in uh, uh, North Africa in the Middle East, but um, in the diasporas as well. So, um, you know, as I said earlier, this is something that's at least 120 years in the making and, and sort of inform informs, you know, uh, the industry today. So the recording industry develops over the first half of the 20th century. Uh, and then uh, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, you have the, the period of, of decolonization, um, which in, in Morocco, Tunisia, and Algeria, it's different in each case. But it's happening in that middle of the 20th century period. And uh, of course, the creation of new nation states. And so I'm wondering what role the recording industry had during this time? Is, is it a story of continuity? Or uh, do we see a transformation in the recording industry? What does it do to records? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, like, you know, w- one of the things I'm, I'm interested in is what, what, what would it mean to sort of use a peri- periodization scheme that is aligned with musical uh, media or technology? Um, so, you know, we can talk about the 78 RPM era as um, the first half of the 20th century, but it extends uh, uh, into the 1960s as well. Um, and so, you know, into, into uh, the, the period of, of independence for Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, de- 
decolonization. But, you know, we can also talk about in, in 1948 as a changing point because of, of the technology. So this is when we start to get uh, the vinyl record uh, as emergence. Um, and so it means a few things, but there's certainly um, there's a certain expansion of the music industry at this time uh eventually certainly when we get to uh the the mid to late 1950s and 1960s many more labels emerge of, of record labels of varying uh, uh quality and and breadth uh and the like um and so we get um just a tremendous amount of um homegrown uh independent labels uh um uh, who are producing vinyl in country? That's 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 one part of this story, and you know I think I think there can be a tendency to sort of um, talk about an independent music industry only at that moment of of independence. Um, but you know if we're talking about independent record labels or or not the labels that are pate or um, gramophone or whatever it is. I mean, we can already in in the 20s and 30s, we can already point to um, homegrown independent uh, record labels in North Africa. Um, but they're not just sort of creating an independent uh, musical infrastructure, um, sort of like a, 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 an inf- a, a musical nation building uh, infrastructure, but they're also in some cases recording material that is nationalist, uh, anti-colonialist, uh, subversive uh, in any number of ways. I mean, one thing I wanted to ask you to, to elaborate upon a little bit more is Jewish artists and producers in this industry because you said the early vinyl is 1948 right Mm -hmm. yeah which is also the year the state of israel is founded and it marks sort of the beginning of the end of the level of jewish community in north africa that once was there you can give us the nuances of it so you have this group of figures who are very seminal in the recording industry of these countries, which you said are national recording industries, right? In many ways, because they're, you know, it's in the local language, they're local endeavors. I'd love for you to say more about that. In Jewish historiography, but also sort of, you know, uh, uh, North African uh, historiography as well, we, you know, we tend to treat um, 1948 as either sort of an end point or uh, or the beginning of the end, because uh, in in some decades' time, you know, we're talking about a few different places here. So depending depending on on uh, on the context, these large Jewish communities will uh, will uh, reduce in size uh, considerably. You know, owing to a number of of push and pull factors depending on on the context. If we take a place uh, like uh, Morocco, you know, we're talking about about in, in 1948, a population of a, proc- a Jewish population of approximately uh, 250,000 people. By 1960, 90,000, about 90,000 Moroccan Jews will have left uh, will have left the country. 
understandably, I think much of the scholarship has focused there on those who have departed. I'm, I'm also quite interested in giving voice to those who remained uh, past, uh, for example, Moroccan independence in 1956. So, you know, the two thirds of the community that, that stays uh, that stays in, in the country uh, as well. So I'm just talking about uh, Morocco at, at, at this point in time. If we shift our focus away from politics conceptualized in sort of like a more a more traditional way and we you know we move into the realm of of music we start at the very least to um to complicate our our timeline a little bit um so for example uh 1948 is also the year that um a young uh moroccan jewish musician who's in fact bound for stardom uh a musician who takes the stage name of sami el maghrabi sami the moroccan makes his debut the height of his career, uh, we can uh, we can map it uh, beginning in 1948 and really reaching its its zenith in, in 1956, uh, that that year of uh, of Moroccan independence. And if we if we dig a little bit deeper, you know, if we, if we ask this question, you know, like not not just were there uh, Jewish musicians, but what were they singing about? You know, and what venues were they were they performing in? Again, Samuel Maghrabi is um, uh, helps us, I think, rethink this era potentially, um, because he's he's very uh, closely associated with uh, with uh, the nation, uh, with a certain type of nationalist uh, politics. Uh, he's very close uh, with uh, with the Sultan. Um, he begins to record uh, more and more sort of explicitly nationalist, anti-colonialist uh, uh, music on his own record label, Samiphone, in the, or in the early 1950s. The French authorities start keeping tabs on him at the same time that they're t- keeping tabs on, uh, on uh, Muslim musicians that uh, some of us may be, uh, may be familiar with. And in fact, he f- Samuel Maghrabi finds himself out of Morocco in 1955 and at the beginning of 1956. So basically that moment uh, when um, the Sultan is returning from uh, from exile uh, and then and then making his way back to Morocco in preparation for Moroccan independence and at that point uh, you know a prominent uh, Jewish musician you know could have made the decision to stay where he was which was in, in France at the time so he was uh, performing and, and recording in in Paris instead he decides to at least initially uh, return to Morocco essentially alongside uh, uh, the Sultan uh, to continue to record this um, pride of nation nationalist uh, uh, music and you know in in mid 1956 if you, if you turn on uh, you know independent Moroccan radio a among the voices you can hear prominently are uh, Samuel Maghrabi, uh, this uh, Moroccan Jewish uh, uh, star, Zor al Fasia, Zor al Fasia, uh, another uh, Moroccan Jewish uh, artist who remains in Morocco at that time as well, uh, and alongside them, uh, and an Algerian Jewish musician by the name of uh, Salim Halali. And so we'll be talking about more of these artists, but we're going to stop here finally for our first proper musical break and get a snapshot of that moment of the mid-1950s. Hear one of the artists that we just talked about, Samuel Maghrabi, play a short clip of that, and be back to talk more about some of the other artists of this period. 
وطني وسلطاني لا مقصود كل عسكري مغربي ومقصود كل عسكري مغربي الله وطني وسلطاني أمرك يا ربنا الرحمن أمرك يا ربنا الرحمن وبفضلك يا سيدنا السلطان وبفضلك يا سيدنا السلطان وبجود زعماء الوطن مغربنا مستقل أهاني الحمد لك يا الله جليل الحمد لك يا الله جليل فرحتي كل قلب عليل فرحتي كل قلب عليل بعد ما كنا بسعد قليل اليوم احرار بجودك يا الغاني الله وطني وسلطاني لا مقصود كل عسكري مغربي ومقصود كل عسكري مغربي الله وطني وسلطاني يا ولاد المغرب يا شجعان يا ولاد المغرب يا شجعان اتحدوا عيشوا في الامان اتحدوا عيشوا في الامان حبوا وطنكم يا شبان المغرب يا عز الاوطاني سيدنا محمد يا الامام سيدنا محمد يا الامام الخامس عزمو لكلومام الخامس عزمو لكلومام نفدي وعرشك بالتمام نحيو ونجدد التهاني الله وطني وسلطاني لا مقصود كل عسكري مغربي ومقصود كل عسكري مغربي الله وطني وسلطاني the piece we just listened to was uh, released on uh, Sami al-Maghribi's own label, Samiphone, uh, uh, a song called Allah Watani wa Sultani, uh, God, uh, my sultan and, uh, and my country. And uh, I think uh, even if you don't understand uh, the, the lyrics, the music will, will speak for itself in terms of its uh, um, uh, nationalism and uh, its, its pride in, uh, in the Moroccan nation. This is a good point to point out that uh, you've made a lot of this music available online so people can go and check it out. There's a, a, a site uh, where I'm uh, continually uh, uh, digitizing and, and archiving this music. It's uh, gharamaphone.com. For every piece of music that's digitized, uh, I provide as, as much context as I can at the time, sort of who the artist is or, uh, or and uh, when the recording was made and perhaps some other things that uh, one can observe when, uh, when, when listening and, and looking at the record. Um, or they can just, uh, if they just want the music, they can hop on over to SoundCloud uh, and, and listen to the, the dozens of uh, pieces of uh, music that are, that are up there now and, the, and there are more coming. And these are great. And the clip we just played is one that is of obvious historical import. And I love using um, this type of material when teaching to, to let students hear just, you know, a minute or two of actual voices from the past when talking about uh, the history of, you know, the 20th century in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, but as we've already said, like, these artists have incredible life stories um, that tell us a lot about the history of the region. So maybe we should move to another figure you mentioned, one of the big names of the music scene in the mid-1950s in North Africa, Salim al-Halali, himself Algerian, but obviously with a, with a broader peel, as you just mentioned. 
Tell us more. Salim, you know, he's one of the he's one of these musicians who first is sort of you know he, he, his spirit at least uh, is is pushing me to as best I can to move out of just a, a strictly sort of national framework when thinking about this music. Salim Halali is, is an Algerian Jew uh, uh, born into a large uh, family uh, in uh, Anaba, Bon, uh, Algeria, eastern Algeria, uh, close-ish to the, to the Tunisian uh, uh, border. This is an uh, Arabophone uh, family of modest means. So, you know, what, what makes his story as as is true for others intriguing as well and and what makes the Algerian case I think so um, striking is that um, you know as you've discussed on on the podcast and in other episodes as of 1870 uh, Algerian Jews the majority of Algerian Jews uh, were made uh, French citizens by dint of the Camus decree and so in theory, they were supposed to be made uh, French men and women as well and sort of um, shorn of their uh, uh, Arabic linguistic or, or cultural heritage. Uh, and yet, you know, uh, half a century later and, and then uh, past that as well, um, we get a figure like uh, uh, Salim, Simon Salim uh, Halali, uh, who is uh, born into an Arabic-speaking uh, family. Uh, he will make his way to Paris in the 1930s as as many young Algerian men uh, do. Uh, he ends up in the Marais, the historic Jewish quarter of, uh, of, uh, of Paris, which is you know, much more associated with Yiddish culture than with North African culture, although many uh, North Africans ended up there as well. Um, he's gifted with, uh, with an incredible voice, um, and he's discovered uh, in the late 1930s in uh, one of the many clubs in uh, um, the Latin Quarter of, uh, of Paris. And by 1939, he... Um he begins recording alongside uh, two other giants of uh, Algerian uh, music, uh, Mohamed Igerbouchen and uh, Mohamed al Kamel, who uh, walk into a Pate recording studio in, uh, in early 1939 and, and record a number of, uh, of pieces that you know, are, are doing a, a bunch of uh, fascinating things with uh, uh, Algerian music, often sort of pairing it with things like, you know, uh, uh, Paso Doble and uh, Rumba and uh, Tango and uh, all, all sorts of sort of uh, international styles uh, uh, that are being uh, made sort of uh, local at, at that time. Uh, and among those records, uh, Helali also records uh, an explicitly nationalist record uh, as well, Arjal uh, Bladik, Return to Your Country, um, and uh, and this is one of the, the, the factors that first brings him to the attention, uh, negative attention to, uh, to the French authorities in, in Algeria uh, and Morocco as well, because his music uh, is being uh, passed around and is being uh, um, uh, instrumentalized in its own way by uh, those sympathetic to, to an emerging sense of, uh, of uh, uh, nationalism. Thank you. 
شعلكم يا ناس خليتوا الكل بلادكم علاش عليكم يا ناس خليتوا الكل بلادكم عمرتوا بلدان الناس عمرتوا بلدان الناس يا ليل واليوم تبعت ورد غيركم ارجع يا بنادم لبلادك وعلاش باقي غريب ما ينفع اهلك وولادك الفرق راهو صعيب الفرق راهو صعيب ارجع يا بنادم لبلادك he finds himself in, in Paris, uh, uh, summer 1940, as, uh, as the German occupation begins. So as the Third Republic uh, falls, uh, as Vichy comes to replace it, and as the country is divided at least into two between uh, the occupied German zone, uh, Paris, and, and uh, the northern half of the country, uh, and, and the, the so-called unoccupied zone uh, uh, in the south and extending to North Africa. And he, he survives World War II and the Holocaust uh, uh, in Paris. It seems likely uh, that he survives because he's hidden at the Great Mosque of Paris in the, in the fifth, uh, given uh, a sort of a, a Muslim backstory, sort of hides by, by uh, passing. His other family members are not so fortunate. His sister, Bert, uh, for example, is uh, uh, arrested by the Gestapo um, and will eventually, along with her infant son, will eventually perish in, in the Holocaust uh, while, while uh, he will uh, survive uh, uh, miraculously. At war's end, he, he emerges like so many other uh, Jews in, in France do. Um, and, you know, one of the first things he does uh, is sort of um, return to the life that he was leading before the war. Uh, meaning he walks again into uh, Pate recording studios and, and begins recording. His voice uh, is sort of uh, as as gorgeous and as clear as, as ever. Uh, Mahidin Bashtarzi, uh, who is the uh, who is known at the time as the, as the Caruso of the desert, uh, the Alger the famed uh, Algerian Muslim tenor, um, dis will describe Hilali in in his memoirs uh, as uh, as the greatest Arab uh, male voice of the post-war era. Um, and so, you know, if he was a sort of rising star before World War Two, and then World War Two dramatically interrupts his life he'll pick up uh, uh, after after World War II um, he opens um, a couple of cabarets in in Paris and then in 1949 he leaves France for Morocco 
Um, so here's uh, the journey of an Algerian Jew uh, first to Paris in the 1930s, uh, survives the war uh, in the 1940s, and then sets up in Casablanca uh, at the end of the 1940s, uh, opens a famed cabaret there uh, called Le Coq d'Or, uh, and he'll operate that until 1965. Um, and so, you know... <laughs> We talked about continuities earlier. Um, so many of those who sort of, let's say, pick up where some of these Jewish musicians leave off at this moment of, of decolonization will, in fact, get their start in uh, Salim Halali's uh, cabaret. Haja uh, Hamdawiya, many others uh, will first start uh, taking the stage, uh, launching their careers from the cabaret of, uh, of, uh, of this Jewish artist in Casablanca, located in the Jewish quarter, in, in the Milah of, uh, of Casablanca. He'll eventually uh, head back to, to France in the 1960s, continue to tour and record, but uh, his, his star will fade uh, over time. But, you know, all of that to say that the movement out of, of North Africa that we're so accustomed to thinking of, I think we need to uh, keep in mind that there's also movement to or around or back to uh, in the 1950s and, and 1960s. And uh, musicians are, are, are sort of, um, uh, you know, the most glaring example of this because they're certainly, they're certainly not hiding. Right, Salim Halali is is a larger than life figure um, who's operating a, a cabaret that's not necessarily for its politics, but because of. Uh, let's say some of the debauchery that goes on there is, is the frequent site of, uh, of raids uh, by uh, French authorities before in the Moroccan independence in 1956. And then you get independent uh, raids uh, afterwards by the Moroccan uh, police uh, because of what's, what's happening in, in these spaces, illicit uh, and, and otherwise. So um, yeah, he's certainly someone who's, uh, whose voice you know, it could be heard and can still be heard everywhere in North Africa. Um, he recorded uh, Algerian music. He recorded Moroccan music. He recorded Tun Tunisian music. Uh, he toured across uh, uh, North Africa. And even today, they're, they're sort of, because he spent so much time in Morocco, disputes over his origins, let's say. It can get, uh, it can get a little bit heated when, when, uh, when they're sort of claims on Hilali's nationality made. Uh, some will say he's from here, he's from there, even though, of course, he's born in Algeria. So let's hear one of your favorite uh, Salim al-Halali records. This is a, a tango that's recorded uh, immediately uh, uh, post-war. It's just, it's a beautiful uh, piece of music. You really get a sense of his, his voice is his, is his instrument. And, and that's what his, uh, um, that's sort of that tarab, that's, that's what his, uh, his audience is uh, uh, clamored for. And what I find really interesting uh, about, this, uh, about this disc is that he is recording here a piece of music by someone that he spent time with in Paris in the late 1930s and early 1940s. Uh, another Jewish artist, this time from Tunisia, named Gaston Bshiri, who at some point, it seems, must have passed on his lyrics to Helali because uh, Bshiri himself is a victim uh, uh, of the Holocaust, uh, is deported uh, uh, to the East and, and meets his, his end 
there. Uh, and there's something incredibly touching about Helali's first recordings uh, emerging from the war, um, uh, invoking uh, uh, the words of uh, Shiri. حبيبنا هديله عمري واللي ينضب كله ليه هو عمري هو بصر اه يا عيني عين عليه الحبيب انا نهديله عمري واللي يطلب يطلب كله ليه نعطي عيني بعد اللي قاله اه صف عليا عمره ما تكلم هدوني فيا لا في حضوري اه ولا في غيابي كان حبها كلمه الحبيب نهدي العمر واللي يطلب كله ليه هو عمري هو بطل اه يا عيني عين عليه الحبيب انا نهدي واللي يطلب يطلب كله ليه ديما مصفيني لو كان قبلتي اه لابد يجيني هذا يستاهل مم عيني بعد اللي هو هي عز احبابي الحبيب نهدي العمر واللي يطلب كله ليه هو عمري هو بصري هي عيني عين عليه الحبيب انا نهدي عمري واللي يطلب يطلب كله ليه واللي يطلب يطلب كله All right, so we've had a great example from Morocco, and we've had a great example from Algeria that actually took us to France and then to Morocco. What do you got for us from Tunisia? You know, one uh, artist that that we need to pay attention to, of course, is is the great uh, Habiba Masika. Masika is is another, you know, (laughs) another fascinating uh, figure, a larger than life uh, uh, figure who was... um, really on the minds of, of audiences across North Africa, and in fact, beyond as well, already at the end of the teens, but certainly in the 1920s. Uh, uh, Masika is born in, in uh, 1903 in, in Tunis uh, to, uh, to a Jewish family as well. Uh, again, again, of modest means, and this is certainly a theme that is, is a through line when we're talking about musicians. Uh, for the most part, um, we're talking about sort of uh, uh, those uh, those of humble origins. Someone like Masika is a 
professional musician, perhaps in the way that we're accustomed to thinking of it, where that's their sole uh, livelihood, if, if, if we can, if that is indeed how we're accustomed to, to think about it. In other cases, you know, some of these musicians are, are, are uh, have sort of a day job and a night job where, where music is, is their night job. Masika is the niece of another uh, early uh, recording artist by the name of uh, Leda Suez. Um, she gets her start in the cafes of, of Tunis. Uh, and by 1918, already at the end of World War One, uh, there's uh, an incredible buzz about Masika in uh, the French and the Arabic language uh, press. Um, she's not just singing, but she's acting uh, as well. In the 1920s, you know, she becomes a bona fide superstar. She um, sings, you know, all manner of music like so many of these artists uh, do. So whether, you know, it's... Uh, it's Tunisian material or uh, the recordings that are being made popular by Um Kalthum uh, and her Egyptian uh, counterparts. She becomes the face of the recording industry in in North Africa, and as an as an actor, um, she also becomes em- emblematic of of you know not just the the turn to the recording studio, but the the turn to uh, the stage as well. Uh, she's acting uh, alongside and working very closely, for example, with uh, Mohamed Bourguiba, Habib Bourguiba's brother, uh, Habib Bourguiba, the first uh, 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 president of independent Tunisia, in his memoirs, recalls uh, skipping school to uh, to go see uh, Masika act uh, alongside uh, his brother, attempting to act alongside her when he can, in the hopes that, you know, if, if, the, if the play is right and the piece is right, he might even be able to steal uh, a kiss from her. And so, you know, she uh, she really uh, looms large. She's she's acting in um, in the type of theater that we're we're, we're um, some of us are familiar with in in the Egyptian context and uh, the the Levantine context as well. That's really politically co- charged. Uh, that's nationalist. That's sort of reimagining uh, uh, Salah al-Din or uh, the conquest of Al-Andalus. Uh, but sort of uh, the the imagery is certainly of uh, of uh, of the present moment uh, of sort of. Um, uh, an emergent uh, nationalism, uh, and to that end, you know, among the things she records, among the dozens, if if not, uh, I, I would actually say over a hundred records that she makes uh, in the 1920s. Among them are increasingly uh, nationalist, explicitly nationalist, anti-colonialist uh, uh, material. It's not her music; she doesn't write the music. She's she's covering it, uh, but she's doing. A damn good job of doing so so much so that you know it's it's her versions of certain things whether it's the egyptian national anthem uh whether it's the piece we'll we'll hear soon uh into surya biladi um uh that sort of uh becomes the the version of, of these songs even though they're recorded by any number of uh, of other uh artists 
one of the very important moments in, in that shift it happens in uh, in 1928. Um, she records for a Middle Eastern label, a Beirut-born but Berlin-based label by the name of Baidafon. Um, she travels to Berlin in 1928 along with uh, a number of other North African artists um, to record music about Syria, about Egypt, about Lebanon, uh, Iraq, uh, about uprisings and uh, kings and sort of the stuff of the stuff of, uh, of nationalism those recordings when they make their way back to North Africa become a, a real thorn in the side of uh, the protectorate authorities in, in Morocco and in, in Tunisia and, and uh, in Algeria as well uh, and essentially a what do we call it a record hunt uh, uh, ensues that will uh, continue through uh, the Second World War in an attempt to root out Masika's version of uh, of this uh, anti-colonialist uh, nationalist uh, music. What's also remarkable about her life, Masika's life, is, of course, how, how short it was. Um, and so, like I said, she's born in 1903. Uh, in February of 1930, um, she, uh, at the end of February 1930, she returns from um, an engagement party that she's performing at. And she arrives back at her home and unbeknownst to her um, an elderly uh, male figure whose whose relationship to her is unclear it seems likely to me that he's just uh, an obsessed fan 
others have posited that that somehow there's a there's a romantic relationship uh, uh, or there was a romantic relationship at play there. Either way, it's um, in an episode of, of male violence uh, uh, in uh, in uh, interwar Tunisia. Um, this uh, figure had um, doused her apartment in uh, in gasoline. And uh, when she when she wasn't there and upon her return, he followed her back into the apartment, uh, struck a match, lit her apartment on fire. Uh, and within a few days, uh, she had succumbed to her wounds. And uh, North Africa's uh, greatest at the time, first uh, superstar, uh, became, you know, an early member of, uh, of the 27 Club someone who uh, whose life was so unfairly uh, cut short her music would live on um, her her records uh, would only grow in popularity uh, from that point uh, uh, moving forward um, her story especially in Tunisia is is everywhere at least some version of it uh, and that you know her, that her legacy remains with us um, at, at this point, almost a century later, is, uh, is, is a, I think, a testament to uh, the impact she had at the time. It's an incredible story. It's certainly all the stuff of, of celebrity. So I want to spend some time in the remaining minutes we have talking about a question that uh, frequently comes up for me when thinking about, you know, old records and ephemera and how they're used for history. As someone who's doing sort of analytical work with these records, you are maybe sometimes in a different category than the collectors or the people who just are interested in these artifacts as, I guess, items of of nostalgia. I want to ask you about, you know, the dangers of nostalgia for doing work like this, but also the possibilities. Surely if these items do have this affective quality to them in our present, there must be some way to harness that for doing good history work or doing good scholarship. You know, I just love to hear your thoughts on that as somebody who's both a fan and a scholar. There's a tremendous amount of value uh, in these in these records for historians. Just, just as, you know, in, in the same way that I sometimes have to differentiate when I talk about historical records and historical records, um, you know, the, these are archival documents as well. You know, um, music matters in the region. Music matters in the region. We're talking about a recording industry that's that's you know well over a, a century old, uh, and you know we can we can we're talking about North Africa, but we could talk about we could talk about the Middle East and, and many other places around the globe, uh, whose origins we know very little about. Um, and so you know just asking questions or trying to trying to tell um, this story about how does it start. Right, a sort of a story of 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 music that understands um, one. It's like import and and significance uh, to people, to, to to people, historical actors that were uh, that were interested, and also understands that that music doesn't just happen. That there's a whole um, network of people involved. There's a whole infrastructure of people involved. So you know, I'm very interested in that. You know, not just um, how how does um, or not just who were the stars, um, but uh, this this idea that I, I'm uh, that I'm gripped by um, that that stars aren't born; they're made. 
right? So you need people who um, help in the discovery process. You need people who might um, usher someone into a recording studio. You need um, the sound engineer. You need um, the person people, um, networks to uh, distribute these records, both um, sort of uh, uh, large uh, 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 record stores and emporiums, uh, but also middlemen and, and women or just itinerant peddlers who are spreading this music that meant so much to, to so many uh, people. So if we, I think if we think about it like that, um, that music doesn't just happen, um, that it's created and that there's creators and there's supporters and there's audiences, then I think we can, we can start to move out of the realm of nostalgia and we're, we're doing the work that historians do on, on any other uh, uh, subject of, of import to our, uh, our, uh, the historical actors that we're also invested in better understanding. What does it mean for any of these records to survive? Okay, they're uh, 10 to 12 inches, okay, in, in diameter. Uh, they're made of the most brittle material. They require uh, special playback equipment uh, that most people don't possess anymore. And they're uh, transported over time, over great distances, uh, in sometimes perilous circumstances, people uh, either just uh, leaving their home countries or leaving their home countries in the midst of uh, uh, war, decolonization, having to pack quickly, whatever it is. So the mere fact that any of these records survived is unbelievable. And then now, you know, thanks to um, both sort of old equipment and new, we can amplify the, the sound that is just buried uh, in the grooves. And uh, we can make them available, you know, not just to me in my living room or, or here on this podcast, uh, but to um, those in North Africa, uh, North Africans uh, around the world, anybody who wants to listen to it, who are they're going to hear things in it that um, I will never hear. I don't think what we're dealing in is nostalgia. This isn't, you know, just fetishization of things that are old. Um, this is really remarkable uh, primary source uh, material that we have been cut off from for quite some time, but which has lived in people's uh, minds and memories for, for decades. So when we're talking about music, if we just stay at that sort of um, at that at the superficial level, like let, let's say Jews and Muslims made music together, I, I can certainly see that lending itself to uh, nostalgia um, because in some ways it might tell us something, and in other ways it might not tell us anything at all. But if we can move just like a little bit uh, beyond that, to sort of the quality of uh, of the music what was being expressed, the settings in which this music was being uh, made, uh, the periodization as well, one that seems to not fit uh, the, the, the more straightforward uh, political history. At the very least, I think you know, our ears are sort of attuned to ask uh, new, uh, new questions. You know, there we're not in the realm of, uh, of nostalgia, uh, but we're in the realm of history.
Chris, thanks so much for telling us all about these records and your research on the program. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure being with you. I want to remind our listeners that they can find out a lot more on our website. Check out some more of these records firsthand through your own efforts to digitize. Um, of course, we've got our bibliography, as always, uh, and a lot of other great episodes about the, the history of the recording industry in not only the Middle East and North Africa, but also its diaspora. I want to give you the opportunity to play us out with one last song. <laughs> Let me think about what it is. Whatever you want. You know? what, do, what do you think would be, do you have a thought about what would be good, to, like something uh, upbeat? I mean, this is the end of the episode, so it's just, you know, if you really want to play one song, whatever you like, it doesn't matter. I think most people, if they're here to the end, they're going to listen no matter what it is. So I'll do, okay. Our last song is, um, it's a post-war recording that was uh, quite popular. It was covered a number of times. Uh, this version was released on the Columbia label by uh, uh, another Tunisian Jewish artist by the name of uh, Louisa Tunsia, uh, and it's called Wainik Wainik. <laughs> Thank you.